Well, good morning, Church at the Red Door. Uh, can you imagine? Day 70. 70. Day 70. Uh, I, I couldn't have imagined that 70 days into this that we will still not be able to meet, and we don't know what that foreseeable future. It's not so foreseeable. Uh, I, I'm praying that we're able to connect again before the end of the year, but I, I have no idea. It's a strange world we live in. I know things are beginning to open up around the around the country and how willing people will be to come back after a period of time and, and regather. I'm not so sure. And obviously for us, it, it could be middle of the summer and we certainly have our local folks here, but it certainly gives a an, an easier opportunity to do social distancing. So uh, anyway, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, Randy, I appreciate the introduction. Uh, I'm excited about this uh, progress that we're making. Uh, I know that, uh, prepare yourself, because are you ready for this? We are officially finished with the Exodus template. I started thinking about it, and I said, well, actually, we could go through uh, all the conquest of the land under Joshua. We could have moved on into the, the time of the judges and then eventually into the kings. I mean, this is a never-ending kind of a series as we take these amazing unseen realm lessons that we can get from the nation of Israel and uh, both their mistakes and then their triumphs of faith that they had for, with many of the patriarchs. So we could, it's kind of an indefinite series and we could have, uh, but technically we are finished coming out of Egypt, going through the wilderness. And then we looked at the first couple of battles and I said, okay, that's a probably an appropriate time to finish the Exodus template. What I prayed about and wanted to uh, ask the Lord, what is it uh, this now the rest of May and possibly the first week or two in June, I want to look at uh, some of the Psalms. So I'm going to kind of begin the process of the Psalms and uh, hopefully it's going to be instructive. So again, I know Randy prayed us in, but I'm going to pray one more time. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the privilege to be able to meet with our family, though virtually. Uh, Lord, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us insight, give us real wisdom, give us discernment. Uh, Lord, send your spirit and just help us understand what you would communicate to the churches uh, at this day. Lord, I just pray that you'd be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to start uh, this kind of, I don't want to call it a series, but a number of weeks working through the Psalms, and I'm going to start with Psalm 93. It's very interesting among, uh, with Jewish tradition suggests that between Psalm 93 through Psalm 99 are specifically referencing the Messiah who is to come. Now, for those of you uh, like myself who are followers of Jesus, uh, you got to understand that we see all of this fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Now, what we're going to get, especially this week, is we're going to begin to get some of the attributes uh, of God, and obviously then as a result of Jesus, of his dominion, his reign, his rule, uh, his majesty, uh, and all these kind of attributes that I think can give us a profoundly deep uh, peace uh, during troubled times. I, I know, again, this is a very challenging time for many of you. We don't want to ever, uh, we don't want to overdo that, but we also don't want to underestimate the power of being sequestered from others and, and all these things. And sometimes we just need to really sit back and think, ponder, uh, really think about the characteristics of Jesus and, and the power that that brings to our daily walk. 
I'm going to go and start here in Psalm 93, and I want us to, we're going to try to unpack this. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be just today or over the next two weeks, but I want to start to unpack Psalm 93. I think it's going to be uh, really impactful for you, and uh, that's my prayer. So Psalm 93, Psalm 93, I'm just going to read, it's only five verses, but I'm going to read it, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to begin to unpack this a little bit. Psalm 93, verse 1, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It won't be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, and the floods have lifted up their voice, and the floods lift up their pounding waves. But more than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies, uh, your witness, that's really what that's saying, what you say about reality, are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So first of all, I want to look at this idea of the the floods. Now, some of your translations, NIV, I think, says seas uh, or waters. Uh, I want to go back, look at this a little bit in the Hebrew, and talk about this pounding of these floods. It talks about that in a number of places here in these five, five verses, that these floods are just pounding. And, and I got to be honest with you, we live in a culture where many of us feel marginalized alienated from mainstream and it kind of has increased over really started uh, you know I think back I was watching something the other day back in the 40s and 50s a lot of people when they graduated from college they actually received a bible can you imagine that happening today and then and then the 60s hit and kind of this sexual revolution and this kind of moving away from old moorings began to uh, infiltrate our country and then all of a sudden you get this sense in which God is not only uh, not as relevant, but is also actually pushed to the side. Uh, and obviously you can't do that, but there's this pounding, this kind of relentless pounding of marginalization and ostracization in some ways that we may feel uh, when we try to go into the culture, depending on where you live. Now, maybe you live in the Bible Belt or you're their part of the year and it doesn't seem as prevalent, but I've got to tell you, I uh, growing up in Texas and being back there and, and being in some of those places, I, I think it's certainly, if it's not up with California, it's quickly coming. Uh, obviously, we're filming here in California, and certainly you see that moorings moved away uh, very much from some of, the old, some of the old standards, some of the old virtues that we would consider virtues. And so that kind of relentless pounding uh, really kind of elevates itself. In fact, when you look at the Verse uh, 3, it says, The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their pounding waves. You know, that in the Hebrew there uh, actually is nahar, and it really denotes that first, uh, those floods denote uh, stream. It really kind of refers to maybe the Nile or the Euphrates. That would have been their perspective. This kind of overwhelming flooding that could happen at various times of the season and the pounding waves that would overflow their banks and be kind of kind of overtake their communities and potentially bring great devastation. And, and that's, I think, what he was seeing. He was seeing this 
pounding of the nafar, these streams or these rivers, very powerful torrential rains could come and, and flood these rivers. But, you know, when it shifts in here in verse 4, it says, But more than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Now, that word sea is a different word in the Hebrew, and it's important to understand. That word there is yom, and it really denotes a large body of water. Uh, maybe for them, that would have been the perspective of the Mediterranean Sea uh, or, or even the Red Sea, uh, a much larger body of water that many of these large uh, rivers would have flown into. And I've got to tell you, uh, when you think about God, he's saying, okay, these streams are powerful and the pounding of these waves and maybe the Nile or the Euphrates, but they eventually go into this massive body of water where there can be powerful forces of waves. But then the Bible simply says, more than the mighty breakers of the Yom, or in Hebrew Yom, more than the mighty breakers are what? The Lord on high, he's much mightier than the large bodies of water of which these tributaries flow into. So in the end, God's might and God's power overtakes the pounding overtakes the pounding of the waves. Now, obviously, this is just a metaphor. This is not something that uh, he's trying to make a literal interpretive view here, but we can feel that. I, I don't know about you, but I, I very much feel kind of that pounding of my soul when I, when I turn on the television or I watch uh, a lot of the things that you see around in culture. You just go out just normally into the public square and you just sense how, how distant the culture at times feels. Now, our prayer is, uh, with our Unite movement, is that we would see, and, I, and I've been beginning to hear some reports, that there is an, a profound awakening that's happening online. I, I know for a fact, I was on a call the other morning with our Israel College of the Bible, and, and you know, we've had hundreds of millions of hits on the website, uh, many of them in, uh, in Hebrew. Uh, a lot of the subtitles are either in Hebrew or the some of the uh, testimonies are in Hebrew as well, and a lot of the work that we do in the Middle East, and, and we've seen an incredible increase in the number of viewerships uh, during this particular time. And we're getting some testimonies now that are beginning to come in that people are being dramatically affected by this, you know, this kind of quarantine, social distancing. Even though things are opening up, I'm hoping there's some sustaining of that. But even in the midst of that, men's hearts are still going to be the same. Men's hearts strive to extricate themselves from the idea of God, from God's rule and reign in their hearts. And of course, they're going to react and it's going to feel like the pounding of waves. I, I think there's a number of things that people, to their own detriment, are drawn to three particular absurdities about their own existence. And I want to go back to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16. And you see the same thing during the time of Isaiah. It, it never changes. The human heart never changes. We have a propensity to desire self-rule. We want to be our own gods. We don't want God to be God. We don't want to submit to anything other than our own desires. And as a result, what ends up is chaos. It's, uh, it's a pounding of waves. It's it's, it's chaos and devastation. Listen to Isaiah 29, verse 16. God says, you turn things around. Turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, 
He did not make me, or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Now think of that for a minute. There's really three things that are being posited here and that really proliferate throughout our culture today. Number one, we try to make ourselves equal with God. And then, or we completely dispossess ourselves of God and try to convince ourselves that if there is a God, he didn't create us, or really, ultimately, that comes down to there is no God. And then lastly, we imagine that somehow God has no understanding. Uh, he's not omniscient. Uh, he doesn't have all insight. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think that. I mean, these are really absurdities, but if there is some powerful, I think the way we would do it in a modern sense is to say there is some kind of force out there that has led to creation but it's not, it is not a force with understanding. It's a blind force. You know, science a lot says there's, there's this blind force. Well, what is this force? Well, it's not, there's not intelligent. So they walk away from intelligent design. They want to say there's a blind force that's kind of leading into creation that obviously then leads to us. And then, of course, the biblical worldview is the opposite. We were all created, the Bible says, Imago Dei. We were created in the very image of God. You know, I was looking at a few uh, atheists. Listen to some of the atheist quotes over the last several centuries. Listen to a couple of these. Charles Bukowski says this, for those who believe in God, most of the big questions are answered. Okay, so now he's going to talk about, well, but we're enlightened, right? Mo most of those have already closed down their minds. He goes on to say, but for those of us who can't readily accept the God formula, the big answers don't remain stone-written. We adjust to new conditions and discoveries. We are pliable. Love need not be a command nor faith a dictum. I am my own God. We are here to unlearn the teachings of the church, the state, and our educational system. We are here to drink beer. Sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, we are here to kill war. We are here to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. I mean, you and talk about the beating of the chest. Uh, we're here to drink beer and, and then, I guess, virtuously to kill war, uh, somehow kind of uh, implicitly suggesting that the cause of war is men's belief in God somehow. And then we're, we're going to laugh at death. In fact, death is going to tremble at us because we're going to go out with this in this amazing blaze of glory. I mean, this fits right in with the absurdities during the time of Isaiah some 2,700 years ago. And you can feel this relentless pounding. People are buying into this kind of nonsense every single day. There is no God. There's some blind force with no knowledge, no purpose, uh, so we're just gonna we're just gonna sit around. We're gonna drink beer, and we're gonna find ourselves in a very powerful position. To in some way, it almost sounds like he's triumphing over death. Actually, death is gonna tremble to take us. I mean, the height of just arrogance and pomposity. Uh, the again, the pounding of the chest as we go out in a flurry of glory. Uh, it's a bizarre notion, and yet that's pretty much again these rivers kind of overflowing their banks and infiltrating culture, and yet we know that God is more mighty, more powerful, 
more majestic than that. Listen to Ernest Hemingway. All thinking men are atheists. Have you ever felt that? Do you just feel, I feel that. I certainly, in reading, you can't even, you turn on, uh, just turn on the television at night. You just see this kind of relentless pounding of, uh, you've got to be ignorant to actually believe the, uh, not only in God, but in a, in a biblical worldview. And then, of course, they're going to assault God, and then they're going to assault the Bible as well. Of course, Ernest Hemingway uh, took his own life, put a shotgun to his head, and, and uh, committed suicide. You think about Friedrich Nietzsche. I quoted him last week. Is man merely a mistake of God's, or God merely a mistake of man? In other words, if God does exist, he's a mistake. He's just man's grandiose mistake, which doesn't liberate us, but captures us and brings us into bondage. I think also about Douglas Adams. He says, I'd take the awe of understanding over the awe of ignorance any day. In other words, he he says, look, we, we don't know everything, but there's an awe of trying to understand. I'd take that much over the awe of ignorance. In other words, those people, those people who are awestruck by God, those people who uh, look and worship and fall on their knees before the creator of the universe, and, and when we see creation, we're in awe and wonder, uh, he would call that the awe of ignorance. Again, the pounding of the waves against our own intelligence, you know, uh, not to mention the fact, and we've discussed it before at Church at the Red Door, Many of the greatest scientists, uh, modern day and in the past, the very founder of science, Bacon, I mean, uh, considered the, one of the forefathers and founders of modern science itself, all very much not only theists, but biblical literalists, believing in the literal death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But in, in our culture today, you, you rarely hear that. Again, the pounding of the waves. Isaac Asimov properly read. Now, this is a really an affront to those of us who uh, study and spend a lot of time in the Word because it's the opposite. But yeah, maybe a cursory glance. He says this, properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. Can you imagine? I mean, the Bible, I mean, I think about it, the Bible, the most potent force. Now, again, this is the age-old kind of atheist argument. Christopher Hitchens used to make this all the time as well. You read about the stoning of people. You read about all the, the law and things. They don't understand the larger, we would say, meta-narrative of Scripture, which is very much based in God's grace. Old Testament and new, we see it over and over. And yet, with just a cursory read, you'd say, well, this, this would lead any clear-thinking person to a position of atheism, which I would say the opposite's true, but you've all obviously got to read it. You know, I was doing a, a study the other day, and, and uh, we taught in John chapter 7, Jesus said, if a man is willing to do the will of God, then he will understand whether the teaching is from myself or, or another. I mean, in other words, Jesus is saying, look, if there's a fundamental willingness to give up your rule and your reign, you're going to understand that Jesus' teaching was from God. Jesus was very clear about that. And, and yet he said, you search the Bible because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these scriptures actually point to me. You know, the purpose of the Bible is, is to point not to a static relationship, but a dynamic relationship with Jesus. That's the very purpose of the Bible, not just a, a list of do's and don'ts, but an entry into his kingdom. And then once we know it, 
once we know him, then we can actually begin the process of meaning and purpose in our life as we build the kingdom alongside being yoked with Jesus. I think too about Emmett Fields. He says, atheism is more than just the knowledge that gods don't exist and that religion is either a mistake or a fraud. Atheism is an attitude. And I, and I think he's right on this point. A frame of mind that looks at the world, I disagree with this, objectively, fearlessly, always trying to understand all things as part of nature. Now, again, this is giving power and majesty to the created order. You know, this is what we see Paul says very clearly in Romans, that they rejected the creator and they turned and they began to worship the creation. Look, if you reject a creator, then you're only awestruck by the creation and then you become suicidal when you realize that the creation is fraught with fallenness and evil and it, and it permeates the culture. So, you know, you're in a really a catch-22. It's only the biblical worldview that really gives us a sense of solidity in our lives and something that can be sustained. I think of also, again, this is kind of slightly uh, funny uh, in some ways, but Woody Allen, it says, if it turns out that there is a God, the worst that you can say about him is that basically he's an underachiever. I mean, again, this is a, a, a boast of arrogance to say, look, I look around at the world and I see all the fallenness of it, and now Woody Allen becomes the, the, the great critiquer of, of the fallen world. Therefore, God is an underachiever. It's trying to demote God, demote God away from his position of reigning and authority. It's actually a backhanded way of saying, well, there is no God, because clearly if there was a God, he's an underachiever. Now, if you think about the life of Woody Allen, I mean, where do you go from there? I mean, Woody Allen, I, I mean, it was never... Uh, he was never went to jail for it, but he was accused of uh, some great uh, indiscretions in terms of his uh, sexual life, even predatory behavior on multiple accounts. I mean, so we're going to talk about that in a minute. There's a place in which you begin to lose that virtuous position. So when you say that there is no God and that, you know, humanity is all there is, but we can be great and ethical and moral and pure without God, it just doesn't seem to work its way out in life. I mean, you think about Friedrich Nietzsche, as a matter of fact, I mean, he went mad by the time he was 44 years old. He was uh, committed to uh, an asylum. I mean, really, I mean, even though he lived out his last days, I mean, he, he, he had syphilis. I mean, uh, you know, talk about virtue. I mean, a lack of virtue. I mean, we'll, again, talk about that in a minute. And then lastly, Aleister Crawley simply says, one would go mad if one took the Bible seriously, but to take it seriously, one must already be mad. Can you just, can you feel, can you feel the pounding, the cultural pounding? Uh, these, these kind of these atheists over the last number of years have really gotten a position these last few centuries, in fact, really gained traction in terms of the post-enlightenment world and how can we believe in these fairies, you know? We can, one other atheist is quoted as saying, you know, it's fine to look at a garden saying how beautiful it is without believing there has to be, there have to be fairies at the bottom of the garden. Uh, but it begs the question, where did the garden come from? And, and there's some natural, logical, uh, very well thought out uh, philosophies that try to get to the bottom of where did this all begin? And the biblical worldview, if you read it for all it's worth, gives us a sense that God was the origin. God was 
the Creator. And as a result, He has been around forever. It's part of what we will see and continue to see in Psalm 93. Olam, from all of eternity. He was without beginning, and yet creation had a beginning. So again, atheists consistently make the mistake uh, of saying, trying to place God within creation, and our very definition of God is to say God is outside of creation, as in fact first cause. You've heard me say that many times, and it's so important to understand philosophically. So let's let's move on here. It, it, you know, Psalm 94, and we'll look at this possibly in weeks to come, simply says, the Lord knows the thoughts of men that they are a mere breath. In other words, what God is saying, he said, look, I know. And I think what you're starting to understand is that there is a cyclicality to the way men think. There's, there's no new, there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, the Bible's clear. Uh, these same ways of thinking, we're gonna rule, we're gonna reign, uh, we're the masters of our own universe, always lead to the same fallacies that emerge over time and ultimately lead to complete and utter despair. So when we see these pounding of the floods and eliminate God from the equation, okay, what inevitably happens? I mean, what is the outcome of that kind of belief? And I want to look at this now over the uh, over the next little bit of time here. Let's, we're, I read a, a blog this week. It's called the Partially Examined Life blog. It's very interesting. I, I know this sounds, uh, I don't mean to sound highfalutin here, uh, but there's a very interesting thing that I believe that happens when we begin to displace God. We would think, oh, if we could just get rid of religion, all right, these are the pounding ways. We could just get rid of religion, real rid of a belief in a, a powerful deity, then we would all come together as one and have this kind of utopia, uh, then we would live happily ever after. I mean, many of, many of the current philosophers saying if we could just get rid of religion, if we could just get rid ourselves of God, then we could live in this utopian world. Now, the reality is, in my view, as I see it happen all the time, even as a function of our own political system today, very often it leads to tribalism. So I read from this blog, he called, he, he, this is not, by the way, this is not in any remote way we would disagree causally, but I think he makes a good point. He calls this epistemic uh, tribalism. Epistemic just means the, how we know about knowledge, all right, the relating to knowledge. He calls this epistemic tribalism, epistemic chaos, and then epistemic exhaustion. Listen to what he says. And this is Mark Sata. Anti-intellectualism, anti-intellectualism, combined with more nefarious attempts to confuse and misinform the American public, has brought the United States into a situation that I'll call epistemic chaos. Now he says, now catch this, he says, epistemic chaos occurs when all of society's previously agreed upon sources of knowledge are undermined, are undermined. Now that's interesting. He goes on to say, or challenged by a significant portion of the population so that society is left without any generally trusted institutions that can function as providers or arbors of truth. In other words, epistemic chaos is a social condition in the context of tribalism in which a surplus of fierce disagreement over who or what can be trusted results in nothing being considered trustworthy by society. 
This chaos is a function of leaving generally trusted institutions. We would radically disagree on what those trusted institutions are, but the results are the same. Now, again, those are my words at the end. Uh, we would, I would certainly disagree with uh, Mr. Sada in terms of what those origins were, those generally trusted institutions were and why that leads to tribalism, he would suggest uh, more of a humanistic philosophy and, and I think his position would be very much against kind of the Trump presidency and some of the other current political things that are kind of at helm. But I want to go to something much more broadly and try to understand this American experiment. You know, when you think about the American experiment, it's based on the idea, uh, the philosophy of democracy. Now, there are other democracies, but never one to... The, the American experiment is a very unique, very unique democracy. Many of you know well the, uh, the French philosopher uh, who came and, and began to explore America and said, America can function because America is good. Uh, but where does that come from? Where does that virtue come from? That's the question I want to ask. If we, if we displace God, if we move God out of the equation, then what happens to society? Well, it's always the same. And that's why you get Marxist philosophies, socialistic philosophies uh, that can kind of devolve into even communism things. They're always a displacement away from liberty and why? A away from God. And I want to explain that a little bit more to you now. Uh, Oz Guinness, I, I, Laura and I had the privilege to meet with Oz Guinness, uh, one of the descendants of the Guinness beer family, but a great theologian, uh, a great philosopher, and a modern, uh, really a, a modern uh, voice into some real uh, solid thinking about where we are as a culture. And this is actually an article from Liberty Institute, which I know some of you uh, support Liberty Institute. But he says this, he says, our system of government was supposed to be more than just laws. This is actually Liberty Institute. The character of its people plays a role that is impossible to ignore. Uh, listen to what he says. He says, and this is Oz Guinness, and they're going to talk about the Golden Triangle. Okay, When the Founding Fathers began writing the Constitution and forming a new system of government, many aspects of politics and philosophy and human nature were taken into account. What emerged was our constitution and its systems of system of checks and balances. However, built into the founders' vision was a complement to the constitution, a catch this, a formula described later by scholar Os Guinness in his book A Free People's Suicide as the golden triangle of freedom. Now I'm going to describe that just a little bit to you so we can understand how we can, if you displace God, if you, if you rise up and say, God, the God reigns, which is the essence of Psalm 93, God and his majesty reigns, and he has the power and the authority to rule and reign over his creation. If you say, no, we're going to rule over ourselves, as was the same during the time of Isaiah. We're going to rule over ourselves, and God has no knowledge, and God has no understanding. And then you're going to lead to chaos. Uh, that pounding of the waves will lead to chaos, and chaos, then, out of that, we try to make a world for ourselves. So we, rather than coming together as one, we end up splintering into tribalism. And I, and I think that's what this is. So essentially, over time, now catch this, but especially accelerating during the 20th century, the American legal system began to take a more secular approach 
to its functionality. Virtue and faith began to wave. In other words, we're going to remove God, so there's not going to be faith and virtue, and those are just words. Those are words that we use. Uh, Character, trust, and virtue had been prevalent. The importance of legal contracts took their place. In other words, I can't trust the old good old handshake, as Guinness wrote. Legal contracts were strengthened and sharpened to take the place of weakening moral consideration such as character and trust. In other words, used to be there just was a good old handshake. I, I know a good friend of mine, Sid, who's probably watching this morning. Uh, we were talking about one of the contracts he was entering into in business. He said, all I need is a good a guy to look me in the eye and shake my hand. And because he he lay he bases his life on virtuous principles, then it doesn't need all these legal contracts. But what happens when you begin to remove God, you remove virtue. So here's the triangle, okay? So here's the triangle. First, freedom. Freedom does what? It requires virtue. If we want to live in a democracy, it's going to require virtue. And then virtue requires faith. And then faith, obviously, to function in a way that's both public and reasonable, faith needs and needs freedom. So you have freedom requires virtue, virtue requires faith, and then faith requires freedom, and you get this uh, you get this circle, this beautiful circle of life that any democracy has to have to be able to thrive. You displace God, you remove faith and virtue, and then everybody cries out for freedom. You don't have freedom, so what do you have? Well, you're going to have litigation, you're going to have contracts, you're going to have disputes, you're going to have... And so what's going to happen, it's going to empower the state to such a degree that we begin to then lose our freedom. So in desiring freedom, uh, we lose our freedom. because So there's no way democracy can work without virtue and faith, and, and that's the point. Listen to what the Golden Triangle really suggests. Freedom requires virtue. Virtue is the only internal characteristic that supplies the self-restraint necessary to balance the risk to social order of giving people a large amount of liberty. Without virtuous leaders and virtuous citizens, there's no reason to follow laws. The republic has an interest in the virtue of its people as much as the people have an interest in the character and the virtue of its leaders. Virtue, both in leadership and among the people, are a core foundation to even trying to live the American experiment. And yet the pounding of the wave, certainly in American culture today and certainly in the West in general, is a movement away from these religious moorings, which is absurd. We can reign and rule on our own. We don't need God anymore. And yet you look at the private lives of many of these atheists and you see absolute corruption. Now, that's not to suggest there's not corruption on the other side. I mean, I certainly can't have a heart of corruption, but there's an admittance of a fallenness away from God and that God and his power and his supremacy that we bow before him, expecting him, certainly understanding Jesus, to then fill us with his presence of the Holy Spirit so that we can become uh, we can get on the road to becoming virtuous. We're not virtuous just because we try hard. We're virtuous because of his, because of his virtue in us through the Holy Spirit. So uh, again, now the second part, virtue requires faith. The founders were clear in their view that virtue necessary uh, was necessary to allow maximum liberty 
required a solid foundation, and that foundation was religion. Now, you got to understand, many of the founding fathers were not, some of them were deists, many of them were not Christians. Certainly, Benjamin Franklin was not uh, a Christian uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but he made it very clear that he would never be a Christian. But he did state, as to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion, quoting Benjamin Franklin, I think the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. In other words, Benjamin Franklin understood. even the, And he even respected uh, the renowned evangelist George Whitfield and Thomas Jefferson, an alleged deist, not a, certainly not a believer, said the Christian religion is the best religion that has ever been given to man. Many critics forget that men like Jefferson were no secularists. They clearly believed in God. Why? Faith was important because faith, uh, virtue requires faith. Uh, just to say, hey, we're all going to be good humanists and we're all going to live, you know, in a one, you know, think of others before ourselves. Why? I mean, if we're just some chaotic chance and we're going no place, in the end it fails. Now you can say, hey, we're all going to be good, but behind closed doors, we're all going to be in it for ourselves. I mean, if there is no God, I don't care what people say. People say all the time, we don't need God to be virtuous. I, I will say that there are some reasonably virtuous people, but in the end, in terms of a societal necessity, we have to have virtue as a core, uh, otherwise democracy fails. And I would argue, as many of the founding fathers did, without faith, virtue just falls apart because every man is in it for himself. Every man then begins to determine what's virtuous. And, uh, and then even then, behind closed doors, if he doesn't feel, he or she doesn't feel it's an advantage, uh, that virtue is quick to evaporate. And then lastly, faith absolutely requires freedom. Uh, certainly, faith is voluntary in Americans, and Americans may choose to believe it or not, but we do have the ability to exercise our faith, currently at least, without any coercion. Faith can flourish. There's no question about it in totalitarian states, but the record of history demonstrates that lowering the walls to faith often allows an expansion and all the benefits of the public tolerance of open religious practice. Now, why is this necessary? Well, it's, it's necessary because uh, the importance of character and faith are heavily discussed. They understand that the system they designed, the founding fathers, that is, was best, the best form of self-government was a virtuous citizenry. The checks and balances created by the Constitution are to be complemented with leaders of high virtue and character, those who can be trusted to place the importance of the people ahead of their own personal gain. And then lastly, I'll just simply say this again from this Liberty Institute article. The founders believe that character should be equally, if not more, important. The founders believe that liberty and freedom could be maintained through the system they designed. However, without the influence of virtue and faith, all of which are enhanced by religious freedom, how long can the golden triangle of freedom and freedom itself uh, be manifested? So that's the question. And I would agree. I mean, when we, we may think that if we can just get rid of God in some way and have self-rule, that it will quiet the sea of discontent. And some would even argue that religion is the core of the turbulence when I would actually argue obviously the opposite coming from a biblical worldview. 
So where does that leave us? Well, there's a couple of other things that occur when we move into tribalism. Uh, in other words, when the chaos comes and we feel the chaos begin to encroach, we look for a safety valve. We look for a safe place. So we begin to huddle into our little cliques, our little tribes, and we have to begin to protect ourselves and our own mind from other tribes. Uh, we can do that politically, we can do that ethnically, we can do that um, uh, socially, culturally, all these ways, and it divides and divides and divides, and that's really been the history of mankind that leads to atrocities like genocide and, 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 and overbearing fascism and, and totalitarian rule and regimes that are so stifling. Look, you eliminate God's reign. You eliminate God's right to rule. And what you will inevitably end up with is the turbulence of chaos and the pounding of waves. So the pounding of waves are an effect of chaos, not the other way around. God's not the genesis of the turbulence. It's man's own desire to self-rule. So it leads to tribalism. It leads to territorialism, for sure. There's no question. It leads to a compassionless citizenry, one without virtue, because we all just become so um, worn out. I mean, Laura told me a story yesterday that happened uh, in the last few days uh, of, of someone they actually knew. Uh, it descended into just chaos. Uh, a man took his own uh, wife who was pregnant and went after her with a knife in the parking lot. There were actually somebody that went to one of the local, uh, she was, not him to my knowledge, went to one of the local churches, uh, tried to stab her. She, she survived, but he took the one-year-old, uh, went up to the top of 74, and then threw the one-year-old off that cliff. And obviously that child died and they were able to apprehend him. Chaos, absolute chaos. And some would say, well, we don't need God. I, I'm just telling you folks that it always leads to chaos and a, and a citizenry that is without compassion. And then obviously, uh, you know, in the end, our, our utopian ideologies and everything else, they're gonna fail because they never deal with the, what the gospel deals with which is the heart, which is the issue of sin. If we don't have a solid theology of sin to understand that we are all fallen, we all live a million miles away. So when we're talking about God and his right to rule and his right to reign and his majesty and his splendor, when we're talking about those constructs here in the Psalms, we have to understand that without that, it descends into our own philosophical speculations and how we create utopias. Look, everybody started, I, even Hitler started with the idea of a utopia. His utopia was, again, based on tribalism, blonde hair, blue eyed, right? Uh, eth ethnicity, uh, and they saw the plight, you know, the Jews uh, were the enemy. It led to territorialism, and the conquering of their territories, it led to an immense amount of uh, compassionless is, is an understatement. It led to complete horror, uh, the horrors of the evil uh, of what happened with the Third Reich. And then all, but he was always driven by this utopian notion that somehow we could set up this regime 
apart from God. It happened, it happened with Stalin and Lenin, and it happened recently in Venezuela. It happened, it, we see it historically over and over and over. Without freedom, you, you, freedom relies on virtue, virtue on faith, and faith on freedom. And without those three, that golden triangle, as it relates to Osgenis' description, we lead, it leads to anarchy. So when we're talking about this, you may already have adopted this. I certainly have, and I know many of you listening will have already adopted this, uh, this beautiful praise of Psalm 93. Uh, Lord, you reign, but many, many sadly have not, and, uh, and it leads to chaos. So in the last uh, few minutes here, uh, next, uh, next week I'm going to pick up with the specifics of Psalm 93, we're going to look at the fact that, again, that God rules and reigns and he has a right to, that he certainly is the majestic one. I mean, he's the God full of light. We're going to look at God's strength. Now, obviously, if he's God, he should have strength. I mean, that seems to be uh, something that goes together, but not always in people's minds. A, a lot of people, I guess, hold to a God that's in some way impotent. Uh, the fact that God has always existed, which gives him uh, an, an immense amount of understanding and knowledge and inscrutable are his ways for sure. And we're going to see some of that in the scripture as well. And then lastly, his testimonies are always confirmed uh, and in his holiness as well and, and his beauty. So I think as we're able folks to begin to really uh, focus on it, if you're struggling, if you're struggling both in culture and just feel like a Maybe some of you are out there alone in your family. You're alone on an island. Nobody in your family really uh, believes into Jesus. And many of you, I, I have these conversations with you all the time. Many of your children, grandchildren, coming from an atheist, atheistic perspective, and, and you just feel those pounding of those waves are so debilitating. Where can you go? You can go to the Psalms and begin to meditate, meditate, on his attributes, meditate on who God is, and I think it'll bring uh, some amazing relief, some joy. It'll lead you to worship, uh, and it'll uh, really inspire inspire you in unique and powerful ways. For as long as this, not just this quarantine and however long it lasts, but well on into the future for the rest of your lives. So I hope this was helpful this morning. Again, and to just to restate what we went we went into to try to understand God reigns. When we displace God, it always descends into chaos, always. It sounds utopian, it sounds wonderful, as did, as I alluded to, as did many of these other philosophical, uh, political kind of things based on a godless society. But in the, way, in the end, if you remove faith and virtue, uh, you lose freedom uh, and the society collapses leads to tribalism, territorialism, a compassionless uh, place in the human heart, and it just leads to anarchy. So I hope, hopefully this was helpful and lays a foundation for us when we can get into next week the very attributes of God. Why don't you let me close in prayer? Father, I thank you for this morning. I, I thank you for my friends. I, I thank you that we are a community that is so, oh Lord, that is so rooted in your glory, in your majesty. Lord, it, it sounds like this subservient posture would lead to a loss of liberty when in fact it is the liberating force 
to know that we are forgiven, that we're part of a family, that we there's purpose not only in earth, but Lord, there will be a never-ending openness in heaven to consistently learn and, and, and plumb the depths of who you are. Lord, this is a glorious future we have. Lord, would you reinstill these uh, this deep understanding of who, who you are and as a result, who we are in you. And Lord, if there's some somebody watching this this morning that doesn't know that they are rooted in you, Lord, that they could just pray even right now, uh, Lord, forgive me. I, I realize that I am part of the problem. Uh, I, I embrace Jesus this morning. I just have faith. Uh, forgive me of my sins. I want to come into the family and that you would give your heart to Jesus. And uh, if you prayed that, we just uh, we celebrate that with you today. Um, I guess next week, folks, unless something dramatic happens, will be day 77. But anyway, uh, we love you. Hope you have a great day. And uh, we're trying to stay in touch, so uh, stay in touch with us as well. Have a wonderful day.